Okay, I'm a bit of a diva, so I need two stands. Also, the I'm sorry. Oh, it's it's come off a bit clearer now, hasn't it? I felt like it was really dim when when I when I first put it up, uh, but now it's there, so that's really good. Hey, everyone. Oh, it's going to be one of those mornings. Excellent. Uh, we don't have long, and although we're only doing five verses, they are five of the most massive, expansive, enormous verses. Um, that I know of in Scripture. So um, we're going to really dig in in just a second. Um, as Paul, uh, uh, what's the name? What's his name? Peter. That's the one. As Peter uh, so delicately said, uh, we are studying the book of Colossians. Uh, we're giving it, I would describe it as an appropriate amount of weeks because um, there's just so much in this book. Um, and so we're, we're going through it nice and slow. And by the end, hopefully, you should realize that we're in a sermon series. Um, that's kind of my main aim. I think often at Forest Hill, uh, we get through a four-week series, and a lot of people don't notice that it happened. Um, so we're, we're just spending a long time so that you notice um, that we do actually go through the Bible and love it very much. Um, now, uh, the, the Colossians so far, we've only had 14 verses in two weeks, but it's already been amazing. Uh, we've learned uh, loads uh, from what Paul says to the church already. He's talked about the grace and peace and the hope that they have from God. He's, he's looked at this church that he's never visited before and said, I'm still so, so grateful to God for all that he's doing among you. He looks at them and he sees God's growth in their lives. Remember Bev's vision of a, uh, not vision, image, image of a plant last week and how God's growing them like a really healthy tomato crop um, and uh, like seeing fruit. Um, among them and it's amazing and he's saying I want God to do more I want him to do more but where we're going today it's like you know when you get on a plane and you get on a plane and then about an hour later things start to happen and you start to taxi around you know that and you're like you're trying to keep an eye on where you are where's the runway oh there's the runway and then you kind of turn onto it some of you who fly a lot aren't excited by this at all but I still get really excited by this bit And then you turn onto the runway and there's that moment of pause as you wait. And then all of a sudden, everything just goes... You know that? In a good way, not in a bad way. If it explodes, that's not good. That's not what we want. Um, And the plane just shoots off with a whole new level of speed. Now, if you've never been on a plane before, you might find taxiing kind of fun. But once you've done that bit, you're like, wow, this is what it's all about. This is where we are. Now, in my humble opinion, where we're going today in this book is like Paul's been taxiing up to the runway. And he's doing some really important stuff. What he's been doing is amazing and massive and expansive, and it's great. But now it's like in verse 15, he just kind of explodes into takeoff mode, and we pick up um, some speed. Why is that? Well, it's because... Paul has just tripped himself up onto his favorite topic. He happened to mention Jesus in verse 14, which he, you know, he did, uh, which is a good thing. Um, and then, but then he's like, speaking of Jesus, and he just goes off on one in verses 15 to 20. Now, we haven't actually read it this morning yet, have we? Take off. Should we do it? Should we read the Bible? What an interesting idea. If only I brought one. Okay, let's go for uh, the app. I've got it on the slides, but it's not that clear. So Colossians 1, um, and I'm going to read from the NIV. The Son, by which he means... Very good. The Son is the image 
of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things in heaven or on earth, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Isn't that good? I think we're going to do it again, actually. I've got a lot to say, but this is mainly what I'm going to say. Basically, we're just going to pick through this verse by verse. Can I read it again for you? I'm going to try and not sound excited this time. (laughs) The Son is the image of the invisible God. Just pause on that for a sec. The Son is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible, whether thrones, powers, rulers, or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. We get a mention. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things. Do you hear that? Through him to reconcile to himself how much? All things. Whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. We're going to have a right party in the next 20 to 25 minutes, I hope. If we don't have a party, please blame me and not this text. And then just go home and sit in it for a while. And my gosh, the picture it paints of Jesus is so amazing. Um, One of the guys writing about it um, said this. He said, it's as though Paul so overcome with the majesty and goodness of this one who brought hope to the hopeless and deliverance to the captive, considered prosaic sentences, that's like normal words, like normal language, totally inadequate to do justice to this person. So his words poured forth in a carefully crafted poem that not only is a literary masterpiece, but the mountaintop of Christological statements. That's where we're going today. We're going to one of those places in the Bible that most clearly articulates who is this guy, Jesus, and what does he have to do um, with our lives? Incidentally, this isn't just the case for this part of the book of Colossians. Just like when a plane takes off, it's now flying, it's in the air, and it keeps flying until it gets to its destination, you hope. That's the plan. Um, And uh, same thing in this book. Once Paul starts talking about Jesus, let's make this clear, he doesn't stop talking about Jesus through the whole of the book. This is now his topic. And Colossians never deviates from Jesus. In fact, if you do a wordle of the book of Colossians, this is what you find. Now, wordle takes all the words and, and then... 
the size shows how often it shows up, right? So a bigger word shows up more often. What's the biggest word? Christ. Paul cannot get Christ out of his head. In fact, Jesus is directly mentioned. Now, if you laid this out in like a, a, like a long sheet, the whole book would be about this long. It's really short. These four chapters aren't like chapters in a, you know, Jane Austen novel or something like that. Really short. So just... But Jesus is mentioned 56 times in this short book. Paul cannot stop talking about Jesus. And that's because of this. The basic argument of the book of Colossians is if you get Jesus, you get everything. If you suss him out, you have it all. And if you don't get Jesus... If you don't get him, if you don't understand him, if you don't receive him, if you're not open to him, then you have absolutely nothing. It's all Jesus. It's all or nothing with Jesus. If you see Jesus, you see everything. Does that make sense? We're going to explore a little bit more of how that works out theologically and practically um, over the next nine weeks. Seven? Eight. There's only eight left, Pete. Come on. Let's say two months. Anyway, okay, should we move on? Let's do some other text. The sun is the image of the invisible God, he starts off by saying. Now that is a massive statement, isn't it? But it's actually one of the central points of the Christian faith, that when you look at Jesus, you look at the Father. Now that's crucial. Jesus is regarded by a lot of people as a good guy. As a nice bloke, as a guy with some good teachings, as a guy who, you know, thought we should love each other and stuff like that. That is not our view of Jesus in the church. Our view of Jesus is that he fully reveals who God is. Now, note, it says the invisible God. You see, um, God, I don't know if you notice uh, noticed this very much, he's not all that visible a lot of the time. Like, I mean, you see him in stuff, you see his nature through the creation and stuff like that. But he's not all that visible. And so people for a long time struggled to think, well, what is God actually like? Like, who is he? We can't draw him. We can't. Uh, Incidentally, there's a funny story about a girl in um, school, and she's drawing a picture. And the teacher comes up and says to her, well, what are you drawing? She said, I'm drawing God. And the teacher says, well, that's, no one knows what God looks like. That's impossible. And the little girl just says, Well, they will now. (laughs) How great is that? Guys, that's like the story of Jesus. We didn't know what God the Father was like. We saw glimpses. We've seen his character kind of mentioned and things about himself shown. But Jesus is the fullest revelation, the perfect picture of who God is. It says in John 1, 18 and 19, it says, No one has ever seen God. Remember that? But I can't remember the exact wording. But no one has ever seen God. But God, the one and only, who's at the Father's side, has made him known. I think I got that mostly right. The the basic idea is no one's seen God, but Jesus makes him known. Jesus unpacks who God is for us. Now that means (laughs) that it's... Follow my logic here. A lot of the time we think of that and means that that means that Jesus looks like God, which is true. Jesus looks like God. But think about it the other way around. That means that God looks like Jesus. That means that there's nothing about God 
that we don't see in Jesus. That means that if you want to know what God is like and how much he loves, you look at Jesus. If you want to know what his opinion is on something, you look at Jesus. If you want to know how he behaves towards people, you look at Jesus. If you want to know whether, he's, whether it's his will to heal the sick or not, look at Jesus. You want to know whether he wants to reach people with the good news? Look at Jesus. It's the, I think Alan Hirsch said something like this. Um, well, basically what I've just said. The, the greatest truth is that in God there is no unchristlikeness at all. Now that's massive, isn't it? Is it? <laughs> I think that's massive. I'm so grateful for that. Then it's not just talking about... Um, it's not just talking about some kind of you know, cosmic understanding of who Jesus is. It's talking about Jesus of Nazareth, the guy who walked around and preached in synagogues. That's what God is. That's who God is. There is no fuller revelation of God than what you see in Jesus in the Gospels. That's so great because it means that he's not an uncertain guy in the sky who may be angry at us, but Jesus is quite nice. So often people think like that, like, like God is angry, but Jesus is kind. That is not how the Bible presents it. If Jesus is for you, God the Father is for you. If Jesus accepts you, God the Father accepts you. And there is no unchrist likeness in God the Father. Have I did that enough? We've done that enough. Excellent. Oh, okay. Now, this isn't just some late idea that the church came up with a long time after Jesus of Nazareth walked around because, you know, religion kind of, you know, accentuates things over time. And you heard that? You know, he was a nice guy, but then over time the church got a bit few funny ideas about. Jesus actually talked like this. Like when the disciples came to him and they said, Jesus, just show us the Father and that will be enough. And Jesus is like... <laughs> He says to them, note the wording, how long have I been with you and you don't know me? They say, show us the Father. He says, you know me. I and the Father are one. You see me, you've seen him. It's on Jesus' lips. Another, another time he's having a conversation and uh, people bring up kind of the subject of Abraham. Again, I can't remember the whole context. Just follow me on this. He's talking about Abraham with, with some of the religious leaders. Um, and Jesus says, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was, I am. Now, it's a weird tense to use because he should have said, before Abraham was, I was. Or even before Abraham was, I have been, if he's just trying to make a statement about his age. But the word he uses for I am should ring some bells in some of us. It's the phrase ego eimi, which is the same phrase that is translated in the Old Testament when God says to Moses, and Moses asks God's name, and God says to Moses, I am who I am. In the Greek version of the Old Testament, same phrase. And what Jesus is doing is saying, I am him. This is not something that we came up with later. This is a core part of Christian revelation from the beginning. It's 10 to 12. We've done the first one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine words. You're doing really well, by the way. Okay, I'm just going to skip. Um, this one is a lot bigger than I'm going to give it time for. Um, this is one of the phrases that has attracted a little bit of confusion. He's the firstborn over all creation. And over history in the church, this phrase has caused some difficulty because it sounds like the first thing to get born by God in the whole of creation was Jesus. 
as in there was a time where God the Father was, but Jesus wasn't. Now, this is um, something that Jehovah's Witnesses uh, in particular, this will be one of their kind of key verses for saying that Jesus isn't God. Now, I kind of get it. They have to then translate later on when it says, you know, in him all things were created, things in heaven. Uh, they, They put the word other in. In him all other things were created, other things in heaven, visible and invisible, all other things have been created through him and for him. Um, now, the problem is, it really misunderstands the connotations that the word firstborn has in Scripture. See, it's not saying firstborn here in terms of before other things were born, Jesus was born. It's saying firstborn in the sense that firstborn carries in Scripture, which is the firstborn is the heir of everything. The firstborn has all the rights of the estate. The firstborn carries all the authority of the father, carries all the family name. The firstborn is the family line. Does that make sense? So it's not saying that Jesus wasn't and then he is. The consistent message of scripture is that Jesus always has been. That God exists, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, in Trinity, in community, that existed forever before the foundation of the world. And out of that loving community, everything else flows and everything else gets made and everything else gets created. There was no time when Jesus wasn't. He is the firstborn as an heir. Make sense? We're going to meet that word again in a little bit. Verse 16. Whoa, massive. Okay, so um, Jesus was born in about naught-ish AD. Not quite. Somewhere around there. No one knows. And yet, in him, all things were created. So this is saying, look how big Jesus is. He shows us God the Father as he walks around as Jesus of Nazareth, but he goes back way, 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 way far. In him, all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him or to him. That means that everything, 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 everything finds its root back in Jesus. That's incredible. That means the galaxies and gravity and the Higgs boson particle, the God particle, no, <laughs> comes from him. Even light and emotions and angels and justice and air and time and life and consciousness and kingdoms and creatures and black holes and dark matter and gray matter and no matter what, it's all from Jesus. Does that make sense? Now this has a lot to say because Paul's point here is this. That means that Jesus is king over absolutely everything. We have this tendency in our lives to separate out the sacred from the secular. There's a part of my life that's holy to God and other parts that aren't. There's a part of my money that's holy to God and some of it's mine. There's a part of my, uh, I don't know, morality that's devoted to God and other things I kind of let slide because they don't matter so much. No, 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 no. Everything is his. Everything is created in him And everything created through him. And look, it's also all for him. It's for his glory. It's for his fame. Jesus created everything in in God. They're two together. Well, they're not two different even. Oh, gosh, the Trinity is so hard to talk about. Nice. (laughs) James just did. Um, 
everything is for him. I, I say to young people when I talk to them about this, God is, in everything that is created, God is flirting with you. Like the reason he created everything is to show off, is to show himself to you so that you fall in love with him. Everything is from him and for him. Rob Bell said it like this, everything is spiritual. There is no spiritual stuff, no unspiritual stuff. Visible and invisible are all from him and for him. Now this raises some questions, which is this. If, if every power and ruler and throne and authority is from Jesus, what about the bad ones? What about when, when there's a power that is really abusive or really evil or really like wrong? Is that, is that from Jesus? Did he put them in power? Did he anoint them and say, yeah, go and terrorize the people that I love? What do you think? It's a problem in Scripture. It seems to come up here. And there is a little bit, a confusing passage in particularly Romans 13 that talks about like God putting authority over us in the form of um, government and leadership. But this is not saying that Jesus is the, the, power, the bad power behind bad power and the good power behind good power. Jesus is the good power behind power. And he put leadership structures and order and stuff like that in place. What this is saying isn't that he's behind it all like that. It's saying that every authority, no matter how massive it looks, no matter how significant, ultimately it's going to be held responsible to Jesus. That there's no sphere of authority or influence that exists outside of his lordship. Now whether you behave like that or not is your issue. Does that make sense? It's all going to report back to him. That's really, really good news for us. Because that means that whenever we look at terrorizing, crazy nut jobs in power, we don't have to be afraid that what if they are kind of, what if they're going to beat Jesus? No, 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 no. They will report to him and he will hold them to account because he is behind every ruler and authority. In fact, you see those words, um, rulers and authorities? The same Greek words come up again in chapter 2 where it says that actually these rulers and authorities aren't submitting to Jesus. These are terrorizing people. They are exercising their power to keep people enslaved to sin and enslaved um, to their own kind of issues and pain. And it says (laughs) Jesus, incidentally, still talking about Jesus, triumphed over them and made a public spectacle of them, nailing them to the cross. That ultimately Jesus' self-sacrificial cross love is going to overcome every power and every authority because it all reports back to him. It was all created through him and it's all created for him. So whatever is beautiful in your life comes from Jesus. Whatever is painful in your life reports back to Jesus and he will defeat it and he is bigger than it. Isn't that good? Not only that, not only is this Jesus responsible for everything, he's before all things, but also in him, all things hold together. The reason that stuff still just goes on is Jesus. The reason that we're still here 
is Jesus. Jesus isn't just a clockmaker kind of God. You know this analogy that God, uh, some people have this idea of God that he kind of made everything, set up all the forces, kind of set up gravity, set up uh, like atoms and things like that, and kind of shoved it all together and then said, kind of go, and then stands back and watches, see what will happen. That is not the God that we worship. He's the one who sustains it. He's the one who holds all things together. Um, I like, I know a lot of you don't, but I really like a um, kind of satirical news thing called the Babylon Bee. Um, and I just, I find a lot of it very offensive. And for me, offensive equals funny. Um, so I really like it. There was a, an article on there a week or two ago that says, what has God ever done for me? Asks man breathing air. As in, <laughs> the logic being, of course, that God gave him air. God gave him life. God gave him breath. Everything that we do comes from God, and we, our whole life is sustained by God. This is a, a doctrine people used to call the doctrine of common grace. This idea that actually, in some senses, everyone on the planet can experience, ex- does experience every day something of God's grace, something of his provision. A lot of people, they need a lot more. But some pe- everyone gets rained on. Like God, God says, I send rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. As in everyone, there's, there's this kind of commonality to God's love that he pours out in sustaining all things. Hebrews 1 says he sustains everything by his powerful word. There's this idea that if God stops talking love and being over creation, we'll just kind of cease to be. Actually, like, he holds it all together. Then... We take a very, very, very strange turn. Because Paul has just been talking about the fullness of everything in the universe. All time, all space. Everything comes from Jesus. And then he's kind of building through the poem. But now we get this. And he's the head of the body, the church. Now, does anyone else think that kind of seems like a bit of an anticlimax after we've just been talking about the universe? That, oh yeah, by the way, he's also head of the church. No one else feels like that. Oh, fine. That's great. We can move on. Now, like, this is massive that he's the, the head of the body, the church. It's amazing that we even get a mention in here. Um, oh, sorry. I've just done something to my computer. Ephesians 1, Paul again writing, he puts it like this. He says, he's in charge of it all. That's talking about the whole universe. Has the final word on everything. At the center of all this, Christ rules the church. The church, you see, by the way, this is the message, in, uh, translation, translation, whatever, of the Bible. The church, you see, is not peripheral to the world. The world is peripheral to the church. The church is Christ's body in which he speaks and acts, by which he fills everything with his presence. Note, please, who is the head of the church? This is massive in Paul's day. Not Paul, not Peter, not the latest spiritually anointed leader, not that preacher who sells millions of DVDs, not the head. The head is always Jesus. And that means we, like the rest of the universe, stand responsible to the lordship and leadership of Jesus. Where he moves, we move. What he does, we do. Who he says go and talk to, we go and talk to. He is the head of the body, the church. And that means that actually, guys, we are really important. 
Say to the person next to you, you're really important. That just came across as patronizing. Gosh, you guys. Because actually, a head requires a body. And we are God's hands, his feet, his movement, his ability to reach the world now. In fact, we, uh, James was talking earlier about a family that he knows and how the church is actually, um, isn't that so great that we've put on display something of Jesus? That's being the body of a head. It's doing stuff that shows them what the head looks like. And basically our aim as the body is to kind of do this, to point at our head and show people the great Jesus that everything comes from. Our aim is not to say, look what a great body I built. Look at how good we are. Hey man, don't you just love the body? No, 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 (laughs) no. Though I know you do love this body. The aim is to point people to the head, to Jesus, to his beautiful, beautifulness. Now, this doesn't always happen as we know. Um, This is the church of the Nativity in Bethlehem. In many ways, a beautiful building. A lot of people will connect with God through churches like this. However, I don't. And uh, the thing gets me about churches, um, uh, and this one in particular, this church is on the site... A lot of people think, and there's quite a lot of evidence to suggest, that it's on the site, or very close to the site, where Jesus was actually born. It's a very, very old, dated site. Could well be the right place. Now, Jesus was born in about the, the most humble possible setting, right? Just with it around some animals, some straw, a wooden trough, dump him in it. And in some powerful way, that actually expressed a lot of who God is. But then when the church comes and plonks a massive building on it, we like gold lace the whole thing. And, and there's an there's a honor about that. There's a beauty about that, I think. Except for me, it's just like, man, how can we celebrate Jesus in a way that looks so unlike him? Does that make sense? And that's true a lot in the church. Not just in that church. It's true in us as well. A lot of the time we talk about Jesus and we think about Jesus in a way that looks so, so unlike him. It's really briefly. Uh, here's another church in, in Jerusalem. Um, uh, by the way, I did a visit to Israel. This is why I'm talking about these churches. Uh, this could equally be said of churches here. But this one is believed to be on one of the potential sites where Jesus was died and rose again. Apparently they're in the same place. huh? Um, so this is on both those sites at once. Now, this church is hilarious. Really, really funny place to hang out. Um, and sorry, if you do connect with God through these things, that's absolutely fine. Really genuinely fine. There's a lot of beauty in it in some ways. This church, a lot of the holy sites in Jerusalem are managed not by one, but by more than one Christian groups. And sometimes those groups have minor issues getting along. So then there's kind of debates around like, well, who gets to open the church then? Who gets to have the Sunday glory 10.30 a.m. slot? Like, and on which weeks of the year do you do that? On Easter Sunday, who gets more time? You had more time then, and I've got more time now, and whatever. This group is contested by, this, this church is contested by like four or five different Christian groups, different denominations of Christians. And they had such a hard time agreeing. They got into so many fights about who owned which bit and what's going on, that the government had to get involved and split up the fight. Isn't that tragic? Not only that, 
and please don't hear anything racial in what I'm about to say, just hear the tragedy of it. They had to give a key, they had to give the key of the place to a Muslim guy because the Christians couldn't agree on when... Now, I've got no problem at all with a Muslim holding the key to a church, right? The problem I have is the church. That actually they can't even be trusted to open up a church together. Like, oh my gosh, do you get the feeling that sometimes we absolutely fail to point to our head? We absolutely fail to represent in our body who Jesus is. And yet he is still the head of the church. And he is not about to ditch us. And he's not about to save the world another way. This cosmic, amazing Jesus is working through his church. We're really getting there now. I'm going to do the last bit in kind of one big section. Um, I hope I'm not taking the glory out of this. This is such an amazing passage. Can I stop and say that again? We're doing well? People liking Jesus from this passage? Very much, Pete says. That's great. Well done. Um, now, okay, I'm going to address this bit not quite in order because Paul gets the order wrong. It's, you know, it's something that he, he does sometimes. Um, so, but in these things, he mentions incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. Now, I'm going to do those in chronological order rather than textual order. Is everyone okay with that? Um, Great. Now, by the way, incidentally, in the flow of the passage, we're moving from Jesus is the head over creation to Jesus is the head over this glorious new creation. That God didn't just set things going and Jesus didn't just create everything and so he's Lord over everything. He's intimately involved with everything and bringing something fundamentally new and amazing to birth in the cosmos. Wow. Wow. Okay, great. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. That is the doctrine of the incarnation. This idea that God... Oh, I can see the pointer. That's bad. Um, This idea that God comes and dwells in Jesus. Now, we've already talked about that a little bit this morning. um, So I won't go too far there. Except just to say it again. God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus. Not some of. He didn't select the bits that would fit more easily in a human body. God was pleased to have all the fullness... Of, of God dwell in Jesus. And aside, God wanted to dwell among us. God was pleased to dwell among us. It wasn't against his nature. He'd been trying forever. <laughs> in the garden, did he want to dwell with Adam and Eve? In the people of Israel, did he want to be among them? Yeah. God wants his presence among us, among you in your life. He still wants to dwell among you in Jesus. Okay, skipping ahead. And through him, through Jesus, to reconcile to himself, uh, as God the Father, I think, but it's all the same, um, all things, all things. These all things that, that Jesus created, remember that? He, he, he's before things, he created all things. Now he's re- reconciling to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. The cross, you see, is a fundamental event in Jesus bringing a new creation to birth. Because on the cross, he takes all our sin, all our source of separation, all our hurt, all our brokenness, all our pain, all our sickness, and he kills it on the cross. He takes all the shame of the principalities and powers, all the forces of accusation in your life, all that inward shame, all those power structures that hold people down, and he crucifies them in his love. 
and dies. And the crucifixion is the central event of human history. Good. Okay, we're done. Keep moving. You went for that. That's good. Making peace. How good is peace? Shalom, peace. Not just you were at war, now you're at peace. But you're at peace. It's this holistic sense of well-being that Jesus longs to put to birth in everyone that he bought on the cross. Not only that, though, he's also the firstborn from among the dead. That there's this force, isn't there, that however powerful you are, however much you think you're in control, ultimately, death's going to get you one day, right? It's the force that no one can break. It's the enemy that no one can defeat. And yet Jesus is the firstborn from among the dead. Now, let me just clarify something. Jesus didn't rise from the dead to prove he was the Son of God. That's often how we do it. So the cross won us our salvation. The, the resurrection shows that Jesus was who he said he was. No. <laughs> no, that's a really sad misunderstanding. The resurrection is the central event of human history, just like the crucifixion, because it wins us life over death. Because it, it, Jesus is the firstborn. He's not just resurrected, but he's the first of many. That actually what God did in Jesus, he is now doing in the whole cosmos. He is doing, bringing life to what's dead. That's his whole purpose in the world. And it all happens through the resurrection of Jesus. Not only that, but it's that so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Jesus, once he was raised from the dead, God exalted him. Do you remember Philippians 2? He exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name. In fact, Elaine, I think, prayed this earlier. Gave him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee must bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Isn't that amazing? See, the ascension is the crucial event in human history. Has anyone noticed that I've said that three times? Good, then it wasn't lost on you. That's great. Sometimes I worry. You know, not that it would be lost on you guys, because you're very sharp and very intelligent and pay attention to what I'm saying. And I'm making this very hard for Fiona to sign. Soz. Can you sign Soz? No. Okay. Um. <laughs> wow. So that in all things, he might have the supremacy. Let me just make this clear in closing. Jesus won the supremacy in Paul's life. And in Paul's thinking, Jesus had the supremacy. Every day for Paul, Jesus supreme. Every day, he's king over the universe. And every day, that governed all of his thinking. There is no area over which Jesus now doesn't have supremacy. And you know what? He wants to be supreme in my heart. He wants to be supreme in your heart. So that in everything, Jesus might have supremacy. So when Paul thinks about Jesus, what falls out of his mouth is this artistic declaration of praise and the glory of the Son of God. When you think of Jesus, what falls out of your mouth? What falls out of your heart? Is Jesus supreme in my life like he was supreme in the life of this Paul? Is he beautiful in my life like he was beautiful in the life of Paul? 
You know, it's like when someone um, gets a new uh, girlfriend or a fiancé or whatever, and it's really annoying talking to that person because all they ever talk about is that person. You've had that? And you're like, okay, you find them exciting. I think they're a bit boring. I'm just going to have to, oh, that's really great for you, yeah. Wouldn't it be great if we just stayed like that about Jesus? That we just couldn't really talk about anything without also talking about Jesus. That if in our lives he has the supremacy, that's his heart. And you know what? It's the best way to live. The best way to live in the world is to live with Jesus as the supreme one in your life. In fact, I I brought as an illustration some supreme soup from Aldi. Yeah, it's gone. Oh, yeah, have mine, Peter says. It's just a joke. There you go, it's done. (laughs) It's a terrible joke. (laughs) Roll your eyes, please. Thank you. We need to come into land. What I want to encourage us to do, really, is just that. We're circling. Yeah, (laughs) nice. (laughs) Yeah. But in a way, wouldn't it be great to never land from that journey? The journey of just exploring and loving Jesus, of feeling like, wow, this is takeoff moment for a whole new level of passion and enjoyment of who he is. That there is nothing that's in your life that's difficult that he's not bigger than. That he's the author of everything, and he's the author of everything new as well. And that what he's begun is just getting started. There is still so much that King Jesus is going to do through his body, the church. Can we pray? Oh, Jesus, just where to start? Thank you that you make the Father known. Thank you that you showed us that he's for us. Lord, thank you for just, oh my gosh, everything that we've just read about in this passage. Thank you for your creation. Thank you for your new creation. Thank you for your heart for us. Thank you that you will get the glory for eternity. And there's no one that's going to stand up to your authority and win. (laughs) Thank you that everything that we face is lower than Jesus. And Lord, thank you that you want to be the theme of our lives. You want to be the love song of our lives. And I pray, Lord, I ask, and this is my prayer for me, that you would inspire in me more love for Jesus, more love for you, Lord, more of a a deep, just craving for you, And more of a deep satisfaction in you all the time. Lord, help us to be people who are aware of and delighting in your presence. Help us to be the body that that the head deserves. And Lord, help us to never look to anything that's not Jesus. You are the Lord of our lives. We say Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is Lord. It's all from you. It's all for you. It's all through you. It's all you. We give you the glory today, Lord Jesus.
Pray for those whose, whose, whose vision of you has gotten a bit dry. Or maybe we come here with, with wrong views of the Father. We just submit those to you and ask for your healing. Ask that you would show us again who you are. Ask that you'd dismantle lies about who you are, lies that we've been told, lies that we've told ourselves about the way you feel towards us or your heart for us or your heart for the world or your heart for a type of person or a group of people or whatever. Just dismantle all that nonsense, Lord, and let Jesus be king again in our hearts. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.